Welcome to the Brain Health Revolution podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. In this episode, we sat down with our dear friend, Dr. Howard Rankin, and had a conversation about addiction. Dr. Rankin has extensive expertise and knowledge in the area of psychology, neuroscience, behavior change, and neurotechnology. He has worked extensively in the addiction space, running both inpatient and outpatient programs. Along with a career in academics and research, he is also an experienced speaker, coach, and best-selling and award-winning author. Dr. Rankin has written 12 books in his own name, co-written another 12, and ghost-written 30 others, all nonfiction. He has also published more than 30 scientific articles on addiction and behavior change and has been a consultant to the National Institutes of Health and World Health Organization. His latest books include I Think Therefore I Am Wrong, A Guide to Bias, Political Correctness, Fake News, and the Future of Mankind, which explores the default setting of the mind and how that can lead us astray. Dr. Rankin is also a Psychology Today blogger, the creator and host of the How Not to Think podcast, and a consultant to Sapien Labs and science director at Intuality AI. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. But before we jump into the episode, I wanted to let you know about Neuro Academy. Neuro Academy is a membership-based online environment where you'll have access to resources to achieve optimal brain health, a better, sharper memory, and prevent cognitive decline. The platform provides the opportunity to connect with us and an empowering community and participate in weekly live Q&A sessions, live cooking sessions, live podcasts, and Q&A with remarkable health leaders, have access to on-demand courses on prevention of neurological diseases, expanding the course to evidence-based nutrition and cooking, anxiety, and many others on various topics related to brain health. We just released a comprehensive course of evidence-based nutrition and brain health, along with a complete cooking course that will help you learn the basics of healthy eating and how you can apply all that knowledge by improving what's on your plate. You will be able to get CE or CME credits if you're interested and also receive certification after taking the course. If you join today until February 28th, you will have a chance to get three months off. Visit us by joining neuroacademy.com. Okay, let's dive into the conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Howard Rankin, our dear friend, Howard, it is such a pleasure to have you and speak about something that we've spoken about in the past, but I just wanted to start by saying thank you so much for your time and for joining us today. And um, I think a couple of words, you know, we've known Howard for a very long time. Long time, yes. And I personally have learned so much from you and you do it in such a beautiful way in such a loving way, and you kind of break down very complex subjects into easily digestible, understandable uh, theories that becomes a part and parcel of our lives. So I just want you to know that we really appreciate you and are grateful for having you here today. Well, look, for transparency, we started working with Howard in 2015 or 16, right. when we were writing our first book. He, yes. He's an incredible, prolific author and, and thinker. He was a psychologist uh, for the, I think, am I saying it right? Lady Diana. And then, and, and, I mean, a, a lot of famous people. Um, and let's just say that. And, and he helped us organize our first book, just the thought process and everything. We had done the research and all of that stuff, but 
to organize a book was different than writing all the papers we've done. And he has been an incredible resource to us. I mean, for anybody who wants to know a brilliant brain, I I, I really truly mean that from the heart. We we, we absolutely love uh, Howard for his thinking, for his honesty, for his um, brilliant brilliance. Yeah, and just an incredible human being. And and whenever we get into conversation, we 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 really try to get into deep conversation because he has that um, that that toolbox that can you know, open up things. And this so is not fulsome flattery. So this is a this a this conversation is going to be a joy and one of many, uh, <clears throat> and it's an important one. It's about addiction, um, and to me, addiction is a continuum of human behavior that has become more available to us. Um, a, a, a continuum of human neurochemistry that has become more available to us over the last century or so. Um, and we'll talk about why, and it's become much more prevalent um, um, just not because of the, the, the things that we can get addicted to and also our lifestyles. Mm-hmm. And, and it's an incredibly important thing because I personally think that um, this this pathway of addiction can become quite disastrous uh, for humanity in general. Um, when, when I go over the statistics here, um, after we, um, uh, we we hear from Howard, for um, it, it's just scary. Yeah. But uh, this is a topic that you have interest in as well and, and have knowledge about. So we wanted to talk to you about this. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm honored to be with you guys. Um, for your listeners to know, Dean Asher and Alex and Sophie aren't just brilliant people. They are loving, wonderful, warm-hearted people who not only um, have helped me um, with their research and their understanding, but also when I was having a difficult time, they embraced me and that meant an enormous amount, their support for me, these amazing people while I was struggling a bit. And they're part of a big recovery for me. So I want to first say that up front. Now, let's get to the addiction. <laughs> I would love you, Howard. Absolutely. Thank you. Right. Uh, perhaps one thing you might want to say, sometimes I mention it on my podcast, which is to the listeners, um, if you want to silence your amygdala and you haven't already done so, uh, please do so. You okay? Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Uh, well, actually, I studied my career uh, on the Addiction Research Unit at the Institute of Psychiatry in London. A long time ago, last millennium, and there, you know, some of that mythology, which I now call it, about addiction still exists, despite the fact that, as you have pointed out and know very well, that in the last 10, 15 years, we have learned so much about the neural infrastructure of habits. And to me, that has changed my view of what addiction is. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so you're, uh, when you started a few years ago in this, um, the perspective was very different, you're telling us. And, and, and what was the per- perspective at that point? Well, uh, the perspective then, and to some extent, still exists, I think, amongst people who, you know, don't really, you know, know the science research and behind it. Um, the the sense then was, oh, you're addicted, and most of it then was alcohol and drugs, not so much opioids, but alcohol and other drugs. And it was, oh, well, look, this is a terrible behavior. Just stop it. Right? Yeah. And yeah. don't yeah. do it anymore. 
okay? And we're going to help you not do it anymore by supporting you, and that's it. Um, and really, it was addressed to motivation rather than anything else. Now, the problem with that is motivation is necessary, but it is absolutely not sufficient to break down a long-standing habit of any sort, as you put it. And so that, that led to the wrong mindset for people, and still does. Um, you know, I was talking with a young man. I, I do some coaching for guys who have been addicted to porn. And I spoke to one guy, and he said, oh, I've had a bad week. And I said, well, what happened? He said, well, you know, on Tuesday I slept, and, you know, I feel really bad about it. And I said, wait a minute. You started this program three months ago, right? That's like 90 days ago. This is the first time you've slept. You've used once in 90 days. Before you came on this program, you used probably 75 out of 90 days. I don't think that's a slip. I think yeah. that's progress. Yeah. And that mentality of, oh, I failed, is based on a false notion of what it really mm -hmm. takes to break down a habit. I, I fully agree. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the blame and guilt that went with this was actually a pathway to further failure because it would, it would silence the internal and external conversations necessary to continue the pursuit, to continue the progress path. Um, and, 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 and I'm also quite heartened by the fact that we, we've accepted the neurochemistry of the brain. I mean, you, I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty of free will and all of that stuff, but at the minimum, at, at the, at, at the hard level of neurochemistry, we do know that there are mechanisms that lead from point A to point B to point C, and we can work on that. And then the motivational component, which is the surface manifestation of that is, you know, that's fine. We can own it however we want to, but if we accept the mechanisms behind it, that's going to help things much better. And most importantly, it takes away blame and guilt, mm -hmm. which are silencing mechanisms for centuries, if not millennia, where we've guilted people internally uh, into silence and into the further path of destruction. And we saw this over and over again. It, you know, Howard, when we give talks, you know this, whenever we go somewhere and we're going now to Australia, we always ask, we want a community conversation. <clears throat> Just as a side thing to find out what's going on in the conversation. And, and um, Aisha and I always talk about the fact that leadership and even love is about listening and understanding, right? And so we have to listen to the different communities and it helps us understand the whole cornucopia, the whole complex manifestation of how people interact and communicate. And everywhere we went, there was, uh, you know, we're talking about Alzheimer's, for example, or right. stroke, mm -hmm. but there was a bunch of people that would come to us about addiction. Yeah. About, mm -hmm. and, and all the, the spectrum of behaviors that are in the, in the, in the same environment, uh, the same um, uh, universe as, as, as addiction. And, and so now we've become quite aware that if we can't talk about mental health without understanding uh, addiction, the young men, Mm -hmm. One of the one of the saddest thing I've ever seen was the utter hopelessness and devastation in the eye of a nineteen year old. Right, right. No, we're not going to name, but but this young man. I mean, you a nineteen year old should not be this devastated, this hopeless. And and I saw that in his eyes, and and he just pulled enough strength to come to this talk of ours. And you feel hopeless because you can't. 
you can't have deep enough conversations in a meeting like that, right? right. But it's important to start the conversation at the point that you did, as always brilliantly, which is, it's not about blame anymore. It's not about, you know, um, uh, just get motivated, pull yourself by the bootstrap. Yeah, motivation or the mechanism of motivation, which is raising awareness and attention is just the gateway. Mm -hmm. Then the next, the, the, the rest of the stuff. I'm, before we go on, I just wanted to kind of give some statistics. Uh, 20.7 million Americans in 2018, um, 12 and over, um, uh, suffered from uh, substance abuse. Wow. Uh, more than 11 million, 12 and over, from alcohol abuse. Um, 8.5 million from both 12 and over, I mean, uh, from illicit drugs uh, uh, abuse. Um, 2.1 million, uh, 12 and over, involving alcohol and illicit drugs. 12 and over. Um, 1.7 million adolescents, 12 to 17, had substance abuse disorder. Um, we're talking about alcohol, drugs, all this, about uh, all combined, 2.6 million. Um, and the numbers just keep going on and on. And it's not just one addiction, which is substance abuse and, and, and alcohol abuse. Now it's opiates and pain medication, which is in the millions. Um, the porn addiction, which is, uh, people think, oh, but that's not, that's not a problem. Addiction is the problem. Yes, the substance might kill you earlier or might, might affect you quicker. Mm -hmm. Might might destroy your life quicker, but the act of addiction is the is the problem. So, having said that, I would love to start the conversation by asking you, to you, what is addiction? To me, um, at a simplest level, an addiction is a habit during which you have built up, unknowingly to most people, a neural infrastructure in your brain that is responsible for that behavior. And that neural infrastructure is so well rehearsed that it now sort of evades consciousness. It happens without you. And when we're talking about consciousness, this is important, we need to make a distinction in consciousness between awareness, oh, I'm aware something's happening, and agency, I'm actually controlling the action. Right? Mm -hmm. Two things yeah. are really important. Joe Montana, the San Francisco quarterback, said, when I was playing, I wasn't conscious. Now, he didn't mean he was in a coma. He was aware of what was going on, but he had practiced and practiced and practiced so long that the neural infrastructure on the brain was working automatically. Yeah. And that's true of any exceptional skill. That's what you've done. You've yeah. developed yeah. that neural infrastructure that can go on without you. And indeed... Yeah. The problem comes when you start to think about it. I mean, what, the one example I like to think of is gymnastics, which is, you know, unbelievably complex. Can you imagine thinking about what you're going to do as you're going to run and do a double somersault? I mean, forget it. It wouldn't work, right? Yeah. 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 So yeah. people have to understand the conscious part of it is just a part of it. But a key part of it is what is unconscious to you, this enormous complexity that our mind body is, and that we create with repetition, repetition, repetition. And that would be true even if it was some athlete developing an, developing an amazing skill or somebody developing a gambling problem or a drinking habit. Yeah. And that was what was missing, I think, early on when I was yeah. in my career, you know, 
30, 40 years ago. That wasn't what it was. It was all, you got to stop. You're stupid if you keep going, just stop. And we're here to yeah. help you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's not giving the right message, I do not think. One point that you made, which is, um, which is beautiful, which is you said that our, our neural infrastructure changes. <clears throat> That's important for people to know. It's not a paraphenomenon. It's actually your, the, the neurostructure has changed now. So in order to get out of that state, it's going to take some time to change the structure. It's not just a momentary thing that comes and goes and you just pull it to the, take it out and put it on the shelf. Now right. you have to change the very structure of the brain from that addictive state to, uh, to, uh, to a, a more homeostatic state. And I think that's huge. And I think that's the huge difference. And I really yeah. like the metaphor that you've used in the past. I've heard you use it. The neural infrastructure over, practice, over time with practice becomes like a really tight rope. And we've got to, we've got to break that rope somehow, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So then Absolutely. it becomes, well, how do you break the rope? But that's what has to happen. People need to understand there is an actual, this is not metaphorical, there is an actual real neural infrastructure that has to be broken down for you to make progress with your addiction. Yeah, yeah. Before we go on, I'm, I'm going to give you my perspective from the neurochemical perspective. <clears throat> what happens, uh, what we believe to happen in addiction. Um, again, uh, when people say we don't know much about the brain, well, that's false. We've learned quite a bit about the brain. But still, it's, it's, uh, there's a lot to be learned uh, at the three-dimensional level, how the moment-to-moment the, the -moment interaction of these neurotransmitters. But the main neurotransmitter, even there, I'm a little uncomfortable to say one thing, but, but the, one of the main drivers of addiction is dopamine. Dopamine is not a molecule of happiness. It's not a molecule of joy. It's a molecule of, of anticipation, uh, of expectation, <clears throat> of, of compulsion. I think I've used the, the, the right synonyms there. I mean, <clears throat> it pulls you in a direction. It wants to pull you in a direction. It's ironically, that's why it's also the neurotransmitter of motion and motor, uh, movement, uh, the, those two concepts. Because in order to move from something, you have to be compulsed and have the compulsion to move in a direction. So people think that, okay, so there, it brings pleasure. Well, initially, when it is satisfied for the few seconds, of course, it varies. For a few seconds, it brings a, a feeling of joy. It's all the serotonin and all these other pathways that, and, and the GABA, which is the inhibitory, all these things work together to give you a moment of joy. In normal state, we are in equilibrium. You have compulsion impulse, and then there is joy. If you can sustain it, that's great. And that's a, that's a whole different thing that I'm, I'm writing on right now, and we're writing on it right now, which is this, this, how to maintain this state of, of joy. And, and, but what happens, there is a, over time in addiction, there is more of this dopamine, dopamine drive, mm -hmm. over, overdrive of do, dopamine, which is continual compulsion, continual compulsion. And the period of satisfaction becomes less and less and less. And it's actually, after, after a while, it's no longer there. And it's always just compulsion to the next, to the next. And then there's an empty space. So you're creating a disequilibrium of, of this dopamine drive versus the, the rested, calm, you know, uh, joyous state. So that's, that's from, from no, a no, and, uh, that, that, yeah. and that also helps understand the link between substance addiction and non-substance addiction yes okay mm -hmm. um 
way back when, when I was on the addiction research unit, I, I actually got a grant to study compulsive gambling, and we looked at that, and compulsive gamblers have withdrawal symptoms. Right, and that's what you're talking about. They don't. It, yes, they're hooked on the neurotransmitter activity that's going on. They're not imbibing anything, and so that's why anything could be an addiction, because if it creates this push and motivation and drive that is repeated and repeated and repeated, you have built a neural structure that has to be taken down. It just has to be pulled apart. And that takes time, and that also runs afoul of the more conventional, oh, just stop Just stop it. Yeah. I'm glad you, you brought up the non-substance um, addiction as well, because, um, you know, as a mother of two teens and as an active member in my family and in my community, I do see a lot of families being worried about certain things around us, including technology, which could be good as well. But you say, for example, social media or having, you know, your iPhones on you all the time. Um, th 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 there was a time when I wasn't too worried about it. And I was, you know, be trying to be very positive about all of this great information being shared with children and families for them to stay connected, for them to stay global and be aware of what's mm -hmm. going on in the world. But I think we've um, we've come to a point where it's very difficult to keep a filter of what gets to our children, um, and that is a major concern. And it essentially changes. I, I've seen it change the culture of a household and a family and a community because of just this deluge of information that is thrown, especially to children. Right. Absolutely. And again, there's a relevance here because a lot, a lot of these activities, certainly, for example, porn, it's an iPhone away or, or yeah. you know, it's your, your cell phone away from you. And that's a problem yeah. a lot of these guys have. You know, I live life without my cell phone and all I have to do is just go to the site. And I'm, you know, so, so that is a problem. I also think just bringing in something that I, I think is really critical here about um, the generation, that we're, the younger generation. Sapien Labs, as you know, they do studies on mental health around the world. And their 2021 study in mental health around the world showed really high levels of stress and distress amongst their youngest group, which is 18 to 24 years old. High levels. Yeah. And one of the issues there is, and I'd be interested in your view in this, I know there's a little research, but it's not fully established, was that virtual interaction is not the same as real-life interaction. And there have been a couple of studies that have suggested that in, in um, virtual interaction, the mirror neuron system, which is really critical for developing social skills, really isn't in play. It's not working. Mm -hmm. right? um, and if you're spending, a kid spending eight hours on the phone, that limits your real-life interaction, which is what you need to develop the empathy, compassion, understanding, interpretation of a real-life conversation. The example I use is, well, can you imagine the difference between watching a plane crash right in front of you or watching it on a video? Mm -hmm. totally different 
totally yeah. different. Yeah, 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 yeah. And 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 so, you know, some of the people in Sabian Labs think that, you know, eighteen-year-olds today who've been so hooked on that have sort of the social skills of like pre-internet ten-year-olds because their interpersonal interaction has been so limited and has been replaced by much less instructive and helpful virtual interaction. Um, yeah, yeah. Again, you know, some of that science is definitely open still to more research. But no, I, I, I kind of agree with that in a sense that um, uh, <clears throat> our, our, we learn experimentation. We learn experimentation and risk-taking. And it's at that edge of that risk taking that we actually grow. Um, when 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 you're interacting with the world across a video interface or telephone interface, that whether we like it or not, that risk doesn't exist. When you're when you're talking to somebody in in real life, I'm not talking about a risk to life. We're talking about the tension that's raised in potentially making a mistake, potentially saying something wrong, potentially this becoming uncomfortable and you're still standing there. You don't have to click a button to turn off the phone, you know? Right, and so right. it, that yeah, actually great. helps you grow, push your neuro, neuro, neural systems to adapt and learn, oh, nothing happened. <clears throat> that's okay. I can do this often. I can have conversations often with people and it's, that's growth. That growth paradigm that that's only comes through when you are experimenting in real life has abated and, and has reduced significantly. And I think that will have significant consequences. Absolutely. Uh, along the same line, so we talked about, and we kind of alluded to this anyway, but I wanted to expand on that a little bit. All addictions are not the same at, some, at many different levels, right? I mean, yes, the neurochemistry, we are, you know, dopamine, serotonin, GABA, glutamate, you know, acetylcholine and so on and so forth. Yes. But, but, the mechanisms and how it connects to our limbic system and how it connects to our humanity, how it connects to our social interaction varies to a great extent. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, certainly when you were talking about substance addiction as opposed yeah. to non-substance addiction, you know, that changes the equation quite a lot because now you've got the effect of the substance on, on you right. and your brain system. So, you know, Clearly, there is a difference there. I, uh, I responded to a request just recently uh, about somebody asking about the difference between substance and non-substance addiction, and, and that's clearly one of the things. And you know, one of the issues were: Do you need rehab for a non-substance addiction? Which is an interesting question. Um, you know, typically rehab, a large part of rehab for substance addiction is to cover the withdrawal period. Right. Yeah. Um, to manage that, but if you don't have a chemical addiction, not a neurochemical addiction, but a substance addiction, do you really need that? It's an interesting question. Um, I, I would argue less so. Again, I'm, yeah. I'm really against binary thinking, um, but I would argue less so. But that doesn't mean to say it couldn't be valuable of withdrawing somebody from their usual environment um, and putting them in a you know, much more constructive environment to pull yeah, them out, yeah. whether they're addicted to an opiate or gambling or porn or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I foresee a problem with that because if, um, if we decide to put someone who has a non 
chemical addiction, let's say, um, a particular habit that is disrupting their life, a rehabilitation for that should always have a component of replacing that satisfaction that they get from the non-chemical addiction. For example, if people are addicted to watching their phones or say, for example, they're scrolling up and down on social media um, and, and they get pleasure about just getting random information at a very high speed, how would you replace that in real life? It has to be, well, it can be something similar, but it has to be something that is connected to their deeper understanding and meaning of life and what gives them joy and purpose. That's a difficult uh, formula, isn't it? Because it's not the same for everyone. No, no, um, it, it isn't. Yeah, right. it, it, could, it could be connecting to the right people for one person, or it could be something mm. as high energy as that non-chemical addiction. Absolutely. And that's, that's another issue that comes up, which is the diff different levels, the spectrum of the power of temptation in different situations. So yeah. some situation might be, eh, it's mildly tempting, you know, and another situation might be, oh my God, that's going to be almost impossible to resist, right? So, you know, all temptation is not the same, mm -hmm. clearly. Yeah. Even yeah. within us, even within a subset of addiction, right? So yeah. one of the things that I think it is important for that I try to get people to do is sort of rank the, you know, what's, what would be easier to manage? What's a little harder? What's a little harder? What's, a, you know, a, a, a um, spectrum of difficulty. Because yeah. for me, ultimately breaking that neural infrastructure, that habit, whatever you want to call it, comes when you're in that situation and you do not engage, you do something different. For me, that is what breaks it down, right? Now, you have to be careful about that, saying, well, here's what, here's what you're going to do. Are you going to confront temptation? You're not going to do it, and that's going to be great. Yeah, but there are levels of that. You know, you don't want to dive in at the worst, highest temptation because you're probably not going to be successful. You're not doing anything. So you can work up a hierarchy. Okay, this is kind of tempting. Okay, can I manage it? Yeah, I can. I do that. And then, you know, slowly build up that ladder till you are beginning to fray that rope so that the behavior now, first of all, becomes much more conscious to you. So you can have a conscious strategy to interrupt that behavior. You do not engage with that cue. And the more you do that, you're breaking down that rope, really. Yes. And... Um one of the things that I think that that matters here is that we, we we're to kind of elucidate this this uh, direct um, stimulation versus indirect addiction or different kinds of addictions. The direct addiction, things like opiates, things like drugs that bind directly to neurotransmitters yeah. uh, or neurotransmitter receptors. Sorry. It, it, that's a very different level as far as scale is concerned. When you're talking about addiction, yes, it's the same mechanisms, but the dir direct level of stimulation is um, exponentially much higher levels. And that also has implications as far as treatment is concerned. So to me, <clears throat> when, when, when you're stimulating neurotransmitters and you're operationalizing or bringing into, um, into a mechanism, into the process 
the receptors for uh, for um, uh, opiates or or other drug addictions, you are now affecting the brain at a much higher scale than indirect addictions. Mm -hmm. And I think that has implications as far as treatment and therapy as well. Whereas freeing the rope for um, um, minor addictions, although that that's questionable if they're, but is is going to be easier or can be done for in a more protracted way or in a yes. space that's in a living space to sever that link with a drug addiction is going to require much more powerful ways, much more isolated ways. Because in that case, even minimal amount of that stimulus is going to be so powerful yep. that it's going to re reconstruct that whole pathway again. Yep. Yep. And, 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 and I visualize this thing. It's like one of those video games. It's, it's, it's a bridge that you're breaking down, but for drug addiction, it is so powerful that as you're breaking it down, it's rebuilding. So yeah. in order to break it down, you really have to do a nuclear, you know, destruction <laughs> or separation or meaningful separation. So it doesn't have time to reconstruct for other addictions. It takes it. They're weaker and you can actually do the deconstructing while you're in this space in real life space. Right. So it's, it varies. And the other thing is now I'm, I'm not contradicting myself, but, but I'm just kind of give you from my perspective, a, a different view of this. Uh, the phone addictions or these TikTok and social media addictions, these companies are brilliant. They know that how to truly get to your affinity. And in fact, to get to your affinities, your addictive affinities so quickly through a visual medium now, not even through a chemical medium, to the point that you become addicted much quicker. Mm-hmm because it's a self-correcting mechanism that they have there in those social media. You're selecting what's, what you like, yes. and you're doing it at 10-second increments. Right, right. And as you're doing that, you're actually getting yourself closer and closer to that moment of addiction and more a greater addiction. So they are finding pathways of powerful addiction through a visual medium, not even a chemical medium. And that's mm -hmm. a scary part of this. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and really that whole concept of neuromarketing where people specifically yes. are looking at how the brain works and, and adapting their marketing strategies accordingly is, uh, you know, very disturbing. Let's put it that way. Um, it is. And that, and that, again, is where tech and, you know, the computer and particularly the phones, you know, we're addicted to our phones. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right? yeah. Um, it, it's really problematic. It's really problematic. It is. Yes. It is. And uh, yeah, I think I think one of the other issues that I'd like to mention, as it engages a good story, is how practitioners try to engage people who have an addiction. Right. Um, it, I'll tell you. This this actually it actually happened um, when I was working on the addiction research unit. Uh, my my. My boss, Professor Ray Hodgson, and I decided we were going to do some new form of treatment, and we we sent out a letter to various people who are in the in the outpatient program, and saying, you know, here's here's our plan. What do you think of it? Um, and one day, a very well dressed gentleman came into our office. Um, looked a typical London exec, and it was like five o'clock one day. He had his suit on and his carried a briefcase 
And we talked for a bit and he said, oh, okay, so you think you can treat this, huh? He said, yeah. He pulled out a small bottle of vodka, opened it, drunk it, knocked it all back and said, treat that. <laughs> wow. 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 <laughs> and, you know, it was, it was brilliant in a way, you know, that here we, you know, here we are, oh, we got to talk about treatment and all this, that that's suddenly going to engage people. It doesn't. It doesn't. Yeah. It, it, it got to a point where if somebody came to me and said, well, I want to quit smoking, I'd say, well, why the hell do you want to quit smoking? What, you know, where most people would say, oh, well, of course you need to do it because blah, 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 blah. What I think does not matter. I've got to know what motivates them. Right? Yes. And there was a, this case... <laughs> Uh, where I was in the addiction research unit, I was focusing, focusing on alcohol and drugs, but there was another section on smoking. And there was a guy there who was inveterate. He'd come and he'd try and he just wouldn't, he just, just couldn't get it. Um, and so my, I shared an office with that guy in the smoking unit. We talked about him. And I learned that he was an avid socialist, which in the UK at the time was not particularly uh, unusual. The Labour Party had been in power, but he was very avid. And one day, um, I happened to run into the store uh, when this was a time where you could get cigarettes out of a machine, you know? And he was pulling these cigarettes out of the machine, and I said, boy, Joe, those capitalist tobacco companies have really got you by that, you know what? He yes. Quit. He quit. Wow. <laughs> yes. You know, it is it's not about what our motivation is. It's about what his motivation is. And really, you know, habit stacking, it's like trying to connect that to something that is really important to them. And somebody, Their why. Yeah, their why. Somebody's been doing the same habit for years and years. First of all, they're probably not going to believe they can do it. Secondly, you know, they're not even sure they want to. You know, you, if you can, you really want to go deeper and, and engage that and not assume just because you know it's best for them, they know it's best for them, you know? And I think that's another problem. Uh, a lot of people have these behaviors that at some level don't believe they can stop. And part of it is there's this myth of, well, once you choose to stop, that's it. And they've tried that and it didn't work, of course. And so then they get into this rather negative, really, mindset. And as you said earlier good word, they don't have hope or any faith that they really can do this. So what you spoke to was motivation, the why. And definitely, and, and beautifully, I started with the fact that that's, that's a requirement, but that's not sufficient, you know? So it's, a, um, um, it's, it's critical that that has to be there. There has to be a motivation. This is my why, my kids, my, my, my future, my, the, or in this the gentleman's case, the fact that Capitalist Adam by the by the yeah by the whatever and and so it's um it's critical that they that we have the why, but again that's definitely not enough to maintain or even take the the the, the process back from the neurochemical um, prison that we we are put on when we when we become addicted. What's needed next is a mechanism, and the mechanism varies from person to person. Yep. There are the triggers. So uh, identifying the triggers, identifying the, 
the 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 the, the source. Where are they getting it from? How are they getting it? Uh, where how pre how prevalent is it? How how accessible it is? Um, um, besides the triggers, the source, and all that, and then the rewards, and then and then uh, the craving prior to all this. I mean, all those things have to be defined for each person and their mechanism. And I, and, I, and I also love the concept that if you fail, it's not failure, it's course correction. Right. And, and that, that idea of failure is, has been so destructive for so many. And, uh, but, but I, so taking it from motivation to the next point, which is identifying the triggers, the cravings, the, the, the behaviors and all of that, how do you approach that? Well, I think it's an identification, identification of the cues. What are the cues, the things you just mentioned? <clears throat> that lead typically to wanting to use whatever that is, right? And, um, you know, that can be boredom, can be stress, could be fatigue, uh, you know, could be any emotion, anger, frustration, uh, just being alone. Uh, <laughs> you know, everyone's got their own and those vary between individuals, but each individual needs to know here are the here are the challenges. Here's where the, here are the cues that bring this on. Now I've got to look. Sorry. Yeah. Before we go on, I wanted to ask you. So that's actually much more complicated. I think this is the part that's most difficult. This is where I'm not a big psychoanalytical psychology person. Um, you know, Freud had his has had its his times, but and and Jung and his uh, archetypes mm -hmm. are useful. But but in a way though. Those cues are complex. Most of us don't have access to all of the cues. M most of the patients that I've dealt with, they weren't aware of their cues or at least the complexity of their cues. And I had, and my five minutes in the clinic, I don't have time to figure out, the, you know, the, the way their mother treated them or the way that, you know, their, their, their childhood. How do you get access to those cues properly? Because I want to make sure that we go into a little meaningful depth because a right. lot of times we say these things, but the cues part is the one that I've had. The, ironically, uh, the, the, the reward and all that is slightly easier. None of it is easy. But right. identifying the cues is so difficult. That's interesting. Um, I've, I have not found it that difficult. But maybe that's because mm -hmm. I'm coming at it from a different perspective. Maybe you're a better psychologist than I am. That's why. Yeah. And let's not forget Freud was a cocaine addict too. So, you know, just... <laughs> That's right. With the little uh, swabs, yeah. Yeah, so so we need to be careful about what Freud said. But typically, you know, I will spend time with people saying, okay, what? give me the situations where you use the most. What would, what is it? And, and typically, um, well, again, it varies depending on what sort of addiction you're dealing with, but not uncommonly it is, tied to an emotion. It's, you know, boredom, mm -hmm. frustration, anger, loneliness, uh, fatigue, you know, I'm exhausted, um, and, and stress particularly, you know, people use that. Yeah, they use those things to get the buzz to change that emotional feeling from stress. This is the opposite of that, in a way. It feels like that to them. So then I get them to identify that. And then I try to get them to assess kind of rate the difficulty in managing that. Now, I've, I've learned along the way, you have to be careful there. Um, I, when I was the clinical director down here at the Hilton Head uh, Health Wellness Resort, 
um, which is a well, weight loss and, and wellness program, uh, we had asked people who came in what their favorite foods were, just for the heck of it. And then one day, um, we got them in a room, and then we brought out their favorite foods that they had told us. <laughs> and then the idea was, okay, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to throw it away in the trash can. And, you know, most of them had said, oh, I could do that. That wouldn't be a problem. Uh, really? I mean, some people got really angry. Some people started crying. Some people just couldn't do it. It was really interesting taking um, sort of a hypothetical situation and turning it into a real one. It's not as easy as, as you think, even, even in that controlled situation. So again, you do have to be careful because people's perception and aware, awareness isn't great, but at least you can get some indication there of a level of a hierarchy of what is really tempting and what would be more manageable and, and that ladder up that way. Correct. Um, and then, actually this was part of my PhD, was actually do an experiment which you probably could not do today which was impatient alcoholics. Um, they were brought into the room for 30 minutes. Some vodka was put in front of them with the instruction. You can drink it if you want, but the idea is not to drink it. And we were measuring, you know, psychological and physiological variables. And, um, you know, over about eight sessions doing that, they definitely improved their expectation of their ability to be able to resist it with practice in a very controlled situation. Now, what was really interesting is for some of the group, we did also some visualization of that, where they were visualizing resisting the alcohol. And that group did even better. Correct. Because we know visualization is sort of real-life practice. So, again, it was exposure without use, exposure without use, breakdown, break down the infrastructure, fray the infrastructure. And of course, the more people do that, the more they actually then develop some faith and hope and belief. Oh, I've done it. I've done it five times in a row now. I should be able to do it, right? Correct. Because that was under very controlled circumstances. I'm not recommending that necessarily. But it is, it is about, for me, I think it is about, and certainly for the non-drug addictions, it is about being in those tempting situations and not using. And what I like to say is every time you do that, you are fraying that neural infrastructure. You're weakening it. You do it enough times, it, it breaks. You become much more conscious. You're much more in control of it. And you also have a history now of being able to, to not engage, right? And so for me, that is really really a critical thing and and working a lot with um, guys uh, who are addicted to porn this has been a very helpful um, structure and framework for them again they still had that old oh if I just decide to stop I should be you know no it's a, it's a journey it's not an event you know first month Correct. you might be able to resist 20% of the time second month 40% you know by the sixth month 50% by the ninth month 70% you're making your way there it's not going to go from oh I made a decision to quit and I'm going to quit it's not going to go there and if it does you're probably not that dependent to begin with 
would be my argument. Uh, I, I, I completely agree. The, the, yeah, but the one thing though is that um, when 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 their craving comes on, which is this dopamine drive to mm-hmm. to, to to reach that objective. And, and and there are different degrees of that. I mean, addiction is the, uh, and craving of, of, of drugs is the ultimate manifestation mm-hmm. of that, where to the point that the person is, is not even conscious of their behavior anymore. They're just drawn almost like robots and zombies towards uh, behavior. <clears throat> and it, one of the things that the research shows is replacement behavior as well. Um, some, some unusual behavior, such as ice bath and things of that nature, which shocks the system and also affects the dopamine and uh, or uh, running or you know doing things that are almost painful not so much uh, uh, damaging but physically painful and they're doing the, the the hard work of running and exercising or or ice bath or something it shocks the dopamine system into re re recalibrating right uh, i don't know it's fairly new as far as the technology or the techniques being used and different things, but it, there's some mechanism to this where the, the, because they've seen that the dopamine system is, is engaged, it's re, re, realigned, the, the, your, uh, there's a counter to that dopamine as a result of this behavior. So some of the things that people can do is if they can identify the triggers, then identify counter behaviors right. that, that are powerful enough to at mm-hmm. least shake up the dopamine drive. Yeah. Yep. It's, it's, it's just so critical to do those. Um, that's why they say that a lot of these ultra runners, um, and I've heard some of the f- people that, 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 that they were, they had some addictive personalities and, and, and ultra running and these kind of ma- you know, unbelievable exercise routines is a fight against such an addiction. Mm-hmm. And addiction doesn't have to be drug addiction, no, all no. these addictions. Yeah. yeah. And no, no. you brought up porn addiction. Um, I'm, 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 I'll, I'll let you speak about what I just talked about—all these replacement behaviors. But we should definitely get into porn addiction because I'm quite scared of its consequences. But before we get to that, um, what do you think about these replacement behaviors? Yeah, and that's obviously one of the things when you when I'm working with somebody one-on-one. That's what we're talking about. Okay, when this happens, what can you do? All right, you've got to have a plan to do something. I do think a lot of the time movement is really critical. So, you know, going for a walk or a run or doing some, something physical, I think, is really important. Um, and so that would be one thing. Um, you know, perhaps putting themselves in an environment where they're now with other people, so it's just difficult to get on the phone, you know, just stop being on their own. Um, you know, stuff like that, I think, is important to have strategies when this happens, what's your replacement behavior? Because if you're just waiting around, oh, well, I have this and I'm going to twiddle my thumb, that's not going to work. You have to have mm-hmm. something to go to because even if you engage something for five or ten minutes, you might have moderated the, the temptation quite a lot and it becomes more manageable, right? So you absolutely have to say, here are the risks, here's my plan, plan A, plan B, plan C, in this situation. Um, and again, I think one of the things that is, if you had to choose one activity, it would be moving, you know, mm-hmm. physically moving. I, I, I agree with you. I have Sorry. a question. And um, this comes from just some conversations with um, some patients. I used to work in the smoking cessation clinic uh, when I was doing my residency program. 
So as far as the replace, replacement actions are concerned, what is your understanding of the efficacy of these replacement activities? For example, if you want someone to stop smoking, is it better for them to have a mock cigarette or instead of that, do something that is not even close to that action? Mm -hmm. For example, if someone has um, a, a uh, let's say alcohol addiction, I know that it is very complex. Is it more efficacious to have a mocktail or just completely get rid of that activity and be in, a, in, in an environment that doesn't resemble anything um, to the to the main activity that they're running away from. Which one is better? Okay, so obviously it de depends on the severity of dependence. You know, mm -hmm. somebody severely dependent having a mocktail probably is not a, not a great idea, right? Um, and and. So it depends really on the severity of dependence. For some people, you'd say, well, yeah, you just have a glass of something else that's non-alcoholic. Um, somebody who's mildly dependent, that might work. I personally would like to get them away from that altogether, again, just to break the connection, the essential cues altogether and have them nothing to do with it. Um, so that would be what I would prefer. But again, it is, it's complicated because it really does depend on the severity of dependence of the person, right? Mm -hmm. Right, um, right. And, you know, and some people can't have a mocktail. That's true. <laughs> without, yeah, I, I wonder, alcohol, right? Right. Yeah. I wonder if we should at that moment, I mean, you as a psychologist and working with people like that, do you trust their decision? If they say, for example, you know, I think I'm going to be okay if I hang out with my friends or buddies who are drinking and I'm just going to hang out and, you know, have a mocktail. Do you think that people are able to sustain that level of tension? Well, again, I think it really depends on where the person is and mm -hmm. what they feel they can manage. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that is, is critical in trying to define the cue, you know. Yeah. Going, going drinking with, uh, you know, going to the bar with some friends who are also trying to quit drinking and you all have mocktails, can you do that? That's one thing. Going drink, bar hopping with heavy drinking friends, you know it's going to, can you really manage that? Probably not. Not a good idea mm -hmm. to go right now. Yeah. <laughs> and Absolutely. again, depending on level of progress, yes. really. Agreed. That emphasizes the importance of having a meaningful connection with a psychologist, Absolutely. you know, who can work with you uh, on a day-to-day -day level. It's it's impossible to do it all it's by complex. yourself. Yeah, it is essential to have some sort of support system, whether that's yeah. a professional or a buddy system or you know whatever it is. You need that support. Uh, there's no question about that. You need that support for accountability. You need that support for people telling you and hey, reminding you what your motivation is. You need that so that you can offer support. And, you know, we recognize that when you do something for somebody else, it actually reinforces what you're doing. So, so that can be helpful. So the role of other people is unquestionably really critical uh, in addiction and any behavior, which I think, you know. Absolutely. It, again, just to reemphasize what the, the, such an important point you made, Aisha, which is um, uh, addiction is an extremely complicated situation. You've just re your your whole neural structures have re, been reframed, restructured, and kind of honed in towards that addictive behavior. Everything is being driven by that. 
-hmm. you need a psychologist to help you in that journey because we will make missed calls. We'll, because of our own addiction, we'll, we'll choose the missed calls and, and go in the wrong direction. And, and the reason we're having this conversation is not just about the addiction to drugs and opiate, but because addictive behavior is a parson, part and parcel of our human state, especially in a, in a, a world where we have surplus in a world where we don't have to survive from moment to moment. So we don't have the, 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 the problem of overdrive dopamine because of excess. So we have to be aware of this. Um, and from in a world where people are manipulating our, our, our addictive network. So we all have to the be, all, yeah, we have to be very aware of that, right. but, but, but for people who have the problem, they definitely need a psychologist to help them with the journey. <clears throat> oh, the reason we're having this conversation, because it has more to do with all our daily activities of how to become addicted to or to be driven by positive behaviors, to be aware of our dopamine overdrive behaviors. And, and the fact that these triggered behaviors are pulling me in a given direction, which we might not call it addiction, but it's a compulsion that's not functional for my life versus right. others that are functional. That awareness helps you engineer your own neurochemistry as opposed to being yes. subject to others or to environmental factors, which we have been for centuries, for millennia. Um, and, and it's critical that we become aware of that, that the fact that we have control over this addictive pathway, at least if it hasn't gotten completely out of control. Uh, one of them that we wanted to speak about a little more, and we'll probably have another conversation about this separately, um, is porn addiction, because uh, you, you were talking about uh, doing some work on this. And I think that the most powerful human um, uh, behavior, uh, evolutionary behavior, which is reproduction and sex is so sub easily subject to addiction. And, and we know this because that I was reading this to my kids that 28% of internet searches are for porn. Wow. Wow. That's I'm scary. like, wait a second. I must, then I'm looking in the wrong places. Or <laughs> <laughs> maybe you're looking at the right, right places. places. Yeah. Yeah. But 28%, I mean, uh, there's no blame here. There's not, this is, people who have tapped into the intrinsic human behavior, which is re the reproduction. And the other one is eating and food. Look at that. I mean, sure, it's yeah. food and, yeah. and, and so they're so easily the, the destructive one. And with porn, it's even more destructive because the amount of work you need to do to, to find a mate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you have to, you know. You were talking about sitting in front of somebody versus across the screen. Imagine right. finding a mate, getting yeah, yeah. rejected, sure. you're talking, you right. know, having watching the cues, watching the tensions, learning, and all of this, all of that is gone. Where you get to the satisfaction without right. any of right. the threat. Right. Yeah, that's yep. grounds for the greatest addictive problem in America, in the world, for that matter. That's true. Yeah. No question. And, and its effect on human sexuality, or its effect on marriage, its effect on human interaction. I think it's bewilderingly powerful and destructive, yet we don't talk about it. Yeah, and especially when you consider that so many men, boys, you know, get get into this and addicted to it like at the age of 10 or 11. Virtually all of the ones in the group that I work with um, in Elevated Recovery, all 10 or 11. There was a guy last week who told me he was five. <laughs> He saw his grandfather's Playboy magazine and he started looking at it and he thought it was kind of cool until his grandmother <laughs> pulled it away from him. But, you know, most of these 
Now, if you think about that and think about brain development too, and in those years as well, which I'm sure has another fact, another issue there, getting hooked into yeah. something at the age of ten. Oof. It's uh, and 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 also at the interaction of how sex manifests because it's not satiated, so you have to push and push because it, it plateaus, then becomes dysfunctional sexual behavior and all of these other things that that come about. I mean, um, just for. I'm, I'm a big believer of being very, very open. And, 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 uh, you know, for that, when I was growing up, you ready for this? I am. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm on the liberal side, you know, this, uh, how I mean, some, yeah. some of our audience might be shocked by this, but I'm, I'm very much on this. I mean, I had to, you know, Sears magazine was the best I could do you know, to watch something, you know, or it's, it's now it's ubiquitous. All, all uh, any child has to do is press a button and it's available to them. Right. And, 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 and then that addictive behavior, because they don't have their frontal lobe fully developed. Right. So now they have to keep pushing and they keep pushing. So dysfunctional manifestations of sexuality and the interface of sex and aggression, which is power thing and all it's, I think it's an incredibly destructive phenomenon that we're not addressing. And we must address. And, and the question I have is how would we even, even address? This is not something that you can, legislator or i think society isn't even starting the conversation about legislation and and i'm not a big person about legislating i, I want society to fix its own problems right. but but sometimes when it's this destructive oh. I'm, I'm worried yeah and you should be it's a massive business i mean it's a massive business 28 of searches absolutely it's a massive business out there um which definitely needs to be addressed. I mean, there's no question absolutely. about it. It is absolutely influencing a lot of people, and particularly young kids. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds. Yes, and permanently changing their brain structure and, and their relationships with women. Yeah, I think that's the, most, yeah. that's the most important thing that I usually am I'm concerned about, you know, when children teens that's a very mm -hmm. awkward age to begin Absolutely. with and everybody's learning how to interact with each other boys with girls and you know, human beings with human beings and with the whole pandemic thing going on us being on you know cameras and on screens and virtual life the children and the teens that have you know spent a long time on on screens they they will definitely have some trouble communicating or speaking oh with the opposite gender. And that's what they say. That's what they say. They're so used to this virtual stuff. And then they see, you know, they're at a party or something and they get so anxious, so anxious because all right. of this stuff has been virtual. And they're yes. concerned that they don't know how to do it and they're going to screw up and they're not, you know, the woman's going to, you know, think they're stupid. And this is a very, very common feeling for right. men who have this porn problem and have had it at such a young age that it has limited their real life interaction. So they really have no real clue as to what to do or how it will be perceived. And so most of them then get very anxious about approaching a person in an appropriate situation, an inappropriate right. one. And so they're totally lost. They're totally lost. And that's, right, not, of course. that's not good, you know? And, and then, of course, it plays into when they do have relationships, 
you know, this whole right. is- issue of trust and should I tell my partner and, you know, all that. Intimacy and, yeah. Right, right. No, I think um, it definitely is affecting relationship when someone wants to have a relationship with someone else. Um, what, what, so of course, I mean, the, the, the first thing in any situation is having conversations and having a better understanding of the underlying psychological boundaries and limitations and strengths moving forward. But what can we do as, as parents and as a society to address this? Um, it's easy to say, oh, don't watch it and put some, you know, lock and key and privacy things, right. uh, things of yeah. that nature. But I mean, as far as awareness is concerned, what are some of the key uh, tactics or, or uh, you know, uh, troubleshooting that we can do? Well, I think some of them are, we've already addressed. But in this particular case, I think it would be actually encouraging more real-life interaction because that is this is what this is a substitute for. And as we mentioned earlier, you know, virtual is not the same as real. You're not learning anything, really. So I think it's important to tell people, um, you know, in an appropriate way, obviously, you know, you know, you're 13 years old and there's a party. Okay, is how you, you know, might want to approach somebody you want to talk to, right? And don't. I mean, the problem is they get so self-conscious that that screws it up because they haven't had any practice doing it. It's Correct. as you said, it's totally fa- false pathway, you know. Correct. And so part of that is getting more and more comfortable about dealing with the opposite sex, independent, you know, whatever context that is. The problem is, if you haven't done that, then there's a danger that you sexualize every encounter with a woman, right? Yeah, Um, correct. And that's totally inappropriate. And we want to be inclusive, so whether it's the opposite gender or the same gender, any relationship that people want to have with, or an intimate relationship at least. So I think that um, uh, at the individual level, of course, that's how we would as counselors, as as psychologists, as as neurologists, we would approach it. But I think the problem is so great. We're talking about addiction, not just porn, but drugs and food. We're seeing the problem of food. No matter how much information is out there, we're getting more and more obese. We're getting more uh, uh, unhealthy because of the addiction component, because we're not addressing. I think what hasn't happened is a a, a more policy and, and a more broader approach to human neuroscience of addiction. Absolutely. I've never heard any conversation at a more, you know, at the NIH level, at HHS level, at the State Department level, at, at no, not State Department, at, at the national level speaking to the fact that, okay, we know more about addiction now, about human behavior now. And if we don't address it now, the marketing companies, we've seen this with food, they're better than any psychologist in how to manipulate people's behaviors. And and we keep saying, but no, it's it's because of the fault of the carbs. No, it's because of the fault of the fat. No, it's because of the fault. No, it's because we have a system that knows how to manipulate our addictions, our two biggest addictions sex and food and if we don't address it at a more global level not so much restraining it but understanding it having conversations with them with industry and others what will happen is we'll become a very dysfunctional society because the market economy is going to want to maximize the end point of that market which is sexuality and food and 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 all of that so we really need to uh, have conversations um 
Well, uh, Howard, this has been absolutely amazing. This is such a law, big concept that we need to have many conversations. Mm -hmm. But it was, a, I think, a good beginning uh, conversation to have. Yeah, I know. It was great. Uh, really appreciate you guys, of course. And yeah, I, I, you know, there's so much misunderstanding about this problem, you know, at many levels. And you just brought up the big one, which is marketers are using what they know to get people addicted. That's their goal is to get people yeah. addicted in whatever way they can get them addicted. They will have their money forever, you know? Um, that's a big issue and it certainly as you rightly say as far as food is concerned um, how that's marketed how you know how, how any of these things how drugs are marketed right right correct correct we saw that we saw this in opiate uh, uh, um, epidemic yeah and 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 we blame the, the marketing people, but this is part of the system. I mean, but we have to have is the conversation to say that there are certain things that we have to kind of have conversations about the fact that their slippery slope will lead to human behaviors that are incredibly destructive. And by, by saying that people have to, well, for a long time, it was people have to just pull themselves by the bootstrap. So we've oh given God. that up. Yeah, but, now yeah. we, now we say that, okay, it's not that, but we have to approach people at the individual level. It's not at that level. It's, if it, we don't Absolutely. approach it more globally, yeah. no single individual will be able to be will be able to overcome the power of the market to uh, to uh, meet our needs of addiction. They won't. And this notion is well, people can decide for themselves. They know what's good for them. It's total justification and rationalization. That's total exactly. Belief. And we know. And I agree knows it. It. You know, everyone knows it. I mean, I've. Uh, you know, particularly the psychiatric meds, you know, I think are problematic. Um, I, I haven't done it yet, but I've always wanted to make an ad where when the side effects are mentioned, instead of seeing smiling faces and people, you actually show the side effects, you know, yes. people dropping yeah. dead or throwing up or what have you, to give a more realistic view or being, you know, hooked on them 20 years later because they can't get off them. A more realistic view of what's going on, but yeah. this is all the all the advertising is to pull you in and get you hooked. Exactly. Here's to more complex conversations. Here's to more interaction, human interaction. Um, here's to more psychologists being a very important part of our society and go hand in hand with whether it's medical treatments or lifestyle treatment, whatever it is. I think everything starts with mental health and it ends with mental health, and yes. we have to make make sure that that is a critical component of uh, any program that uh, focuses on well-being and wellness in general. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Howard, for your oh, time. You. We really appreciate it. Hopefully, we'll have many conversations in the future. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.